Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Come on in and grab a seat. Sit up close if you don't mind. That's why we uh, make the lights dark in the back. It's a way to secretly guilt you into making a big room feel small. Look at that. You're going to win Deacon of the Year this year. It's a coveted title. It's a coveted title. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we will get into the lesson today. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you're great and that we need your help. And so we ask that you would uh, encourage our hearts as we study not only in uh, theological equipping class this morning, but also in the sermon in uh, uh, a little over an hour. And so we just confess that we are dependent and we are needy. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got your uh, notes there, let me tell you what we're doing today. Again, we are studying social and political theology. That's what we've been studying this semester in theological equipping class. And so uh, we've been going over some juicy social and political topics. And so we've talked about things like abortion and race and feminism and all kinds of things. And today we're actually going to be talking about uh, the issue of guns and gun control, which is a sticky issue. We'll talk a little bit about self-defense, but that was mainly subsumed in our lesson on just war theory, Uh, but we're going to talk about guns, gun control, weapons, these kind of things. What should Christians think about that? Because this is a hot political topic. Every time there is a so-called mass shooting, uh, people instantly uh, run to one side or the other on this issue, and so we're going to talk about what Christians should think about it. Now, you might be thinking, Zach, how are we going to do a study of guns from the Bible? Because guns were not invented until a long time after the New Testament is done being written. Well, here's what I would challenge you with. I would say the Bible's actually going to talk a lot about guns. It just calls them swords, okay? That's how we do theology. The Bible's going to use the word shoots a lot. It's just going to reference bow and arrow, right? So how we do theology is what the Bible does is it gives us a pattern, and our job is to fit it into new situations in life. You're not going to find the word meth in the Bible, But how do you know you shouldn't do meth? Well, because what the Bible says about drunkenness, for example, would certainly apply to somebody doing meth. The Bible's not going to use the term internet pornography. How do you know that's sinful? Because the Bible's going to say to look upon a woman with lust is to commit adultery in your heart. And so what the Bible does is it gives us these patterns and that we have to fit new things as technology changes, as life changes, we have to fit those things into old pattern. That's really the job of the theologian. Take new ideas and subsume them under old ideas. And so what we're going to do today is kind of a biblical theology and a study of weapons. What's called hoplology is the study of weapons. A hoplon was a uh, Greek shield, a hoplite is a a Greek soldier, and so the study of weapons is called hoplology. So let me tell you, we're going to try to do three main things today. First, we're going to look at some things that the Bible says about weapons. Second, we're going to look at the Second Amendment in context and figure out what it actually does and doesn't mean. And lastly, we're going to talk about what Christians should think about guns and gun control, since after all, these are the swords or the spears of our day. Now, this lesson is going to assume that you've already listened to our lecture on just war theory. If you haven't, if you haven't already figured out that there are times when Christians can use righteous violence, this lesson's not going to make any sense. This assumes you've already listened to just war theory. If you haven't, please go back and listen to that lesson. And then one more thing before we really get into it. There are some of the lessons that we've done this semester that if you're a Christian, you have to agree with that, okay? So when we talk about how abortion is evil and sinful, as a Christian, you must agree with that. When we talk about what the Bible says regarding the race issue, you must agree with that. These are, these are big Bible topics. 
When it comes to this issue, though, there's gonna be a lot more freedom among Christians. The Bible is not gonna command you to own a weapon. It's not gonna require that you own a weapon. You are not more or less holy if you do or don't have a gun. And so though I'm gonna push pretty hard from one side, you need to understand that this is really gonna be an adiaphora issue. That uh, self-defense is something that the Bible allows, but it does not require that you do it with a gun or whatever. And so keep in mind that there's gonna be some Christian freedom when it comes to this lesson. So if you at the end of it say, you know what? I don't think guns are sinful, but they're just not for me. I don't like them. That's totally fine. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to be, uh, though this is Texas, you don't have to be gun-toting to honor the Lord. So keep that in mind. Now, let's first get into the uh, first part here. Uh, Interesting things that the Bible teaches about weapons. Let me just give you a quick survey. We can't get into everything the Bible says about weapons. They're mentioned a bunch, but let's look at just a few interesting things here. First of all, weapons in the Bible can be classified into four types. The first is projectile. This would be, for example, bow and arrow, a sling, old King David and his uh, destroying of Goliath, uh, sling and stone, javelin, etc. things that you throw, you launch, you sling, whatever it might be, things that hit from a distance. The second are striking weapons, things such as a sword, spears. Typically, by the way, you don't throw spears. That's a misconception. You throw javelins, spears you use for up-close combat, uh, you know, Spartan style. Spears, rocks, daggers, axes, clubs, etc., The third would be mobile weapons. This would be things such as a chariot, which the Bible talks a lot about. Israel's not to put their hope in their chariots. Chariots, battering rams, siege works, which you would use to overcome an ancient wall. And then the fourth, protective weapons. These would be things such as shield, armor, etc. So that's the four main types of weapons mentioned in the Bible. And then let's go over some theological things we learn about weapons from the Bible. And I've even included some references from things outside of the Bible, just so you can get yourself into the mindset of uh, of the ancient world. First of all, weapons can be symbols of spiritual judgment. So oftentimes the Bible will say something that God will wet his sword against the wicked or he will, uh, you know, uh, pierce their liver with his arrows. It's used oftentimes metaphorically to talk about God bringing judgment. Deuteronomy 32, 41 through 42. If I sharpen my flashing sword, this is God talking, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. What a fun passage about God, huh? You've never seen that on a Christian t-shirt. Psalm 7, 12 through 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. So there's this idea that uh, sometimes weapons are used metaphorically of God bringing judgment. This isn't just the case with Yahweh, the God of the Bible. This was also the case with a lot of things in the ancient world. So there was this idea in Greek mythology that Apollo would shoot arrows at you if you were disobedient. And what were his arrows tipped with in Greek mythology? Does anybody know? They were tipped with plague, okay? They were tipped with COVID, if you will. They were tipped with plague with Apollo when he would shoot. Even outside of the Bible, in a book called Wisdom of Solomon, which is not part of God's word, but it's helpful for understanding how Jews thought. Wisdom of Solomon 5, 16 through 21 says this. Therefore, they will receive a glorious crown and a beautiful diadem from the hand of the Lord, because with his right hand, he will cover them, and with his arm, he will shield them. The Lord will take his zeal as his whole armor and will arm all creation to repel his enemies. He will put on righteousness as a breastplate and wear impartial justice as a helmet. He will take holiness as an invincible shield and sharpen stern wrath for a sword and creation will join with him to fight against his frenzied foes. Shafts of lightning will fly with true aim and will leap from the clouds to the target as from a well-drawn bow. That might be the passage, though it's not scripture, it's part of the Apocrypha. That might be the passage that Paul even though has in mind when he's talking about the, uh, the spiritual armor in Ephesians. 
Genesis 3, when mankind rebels against God, what does God put at the garden to keep them from going back and eating of the tree of life and living forever in their unregenerate state? What does he put? Flaming sword, okay? That's kind of, there's this weird sword slash angel. By the way, the word cherubim, the, the word in Hebrew for sword is cherub. So cherubim, cherubim, are swordsmen. They're not these little naked baby angels that you send at Christmas time. No, no, they're terrifying, okay? And that's kind of the idea of what's guarding the Garden of Eden. So that's one thing that weapons are used for in the Bible. The next thing you need to know, humanity needing to use weapons is seen as a result of the fall. That's interesting. Had mankind never fallen, there would not be the need for weapons. It's seen as a result of the fall. Just to give one example, and there are others. In Genesis 27, 40, Esau is told, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. In 1 Enoch 8, which is also not in the Bible, but it helps us again understand how Jews thought about these kind of things. In 1 Enoch 8, fallen angels are the ones that teach mankind a bunch of evil things. So when the angels rebel against God, some of them are cast down, the demons, they fall. And what do they do? They go do demon stuff like teaching humans naughty things. They teach humans sorcery, astrology, how to make cosmetics, and how to make weapons. Okay? How to make weapons. Those last two sometimes go together. Weapons are seen as ways that the government punishes their opponents in the Bible. Exodus 5.21, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So what they're saying is they're saying, though, though Pharaoh's evil, they're saying one of the things that Pharaoh does is he bears the sword against his enemies. This is something that governments do. Joshua 6.21, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Notice that God's people governmentally are using the sword against uh, their political enemies. Romans 13.4, talking about the state. This would include police officers. This would include soldiers. This would include these kind of things. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword or the gun in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So one of the things the Bible will say is that part of the purpose of weapons is for the state to enact righteousness, to enact justice against those who would rebel against them. Another thing that the Bible would say about weapons, weapons are needed now, but there is a prophetic hope that one day they will no longer be needed. Leviticus 26.6. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid and I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. That idea originally given to Israel about the promised land does have a larger theological feel to it about how life is supposed to be eventually when Christ comes back that one day you will not need those weapons. Isaiah 2.4, a very famous passage. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay, that's the prophetic hope. Now, sometimes Christians get a little bit uh, falsely pious and overly zealous and they say, because we're not gonna have guns or weapons in eternity, we should get rid of them now. And anytime you do that, you start to fall into some old ancient heresies, which go something like this. Because we won't be married in heaven, there shouldn't be any marriage now. You see this constantly in the New Testament and in the early church. People saying, because one day we won't be married, we just shouldn't be married now. Well, that's crazy talk. There are certainly things you need now that you don't need in in eternity, like doctors and lawyers and weapons and getting married. And how about the sun, the S-U-N? There's none of that in the book of Revelation, okay? And so, uh, so keep that in mind before you have an overly weird, uh, overly uh, realized eschatology. Israel is commanded not to trust in their own military might, 
but in God. So there can be, there are times where if you're trusting too much in your ability to defend yourself, trusting too much in weapons, that that could be unbiblical because your ultimate hope is God. Remember that in light of this being an election year. Deuteronomy 21, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 1 Samuel 17, 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into, uh, uh, he will give you into our hand, okay? As a representative of Israel speaking. At times in the Bible, weapons are seen as a sign of manliness and valor, okay? So if you think of, for example, Ehud, who kills a big old King Eglon with that secret concealed dagger on his thigh, right? Or David's mighty men, you think of them. Sometimes the Bible goes out of the way just to talk about how tough and macho they are. So it's kind of fun. I actually saw a guy online that said, there's nothing in the Bible that promotes this kind of idea of macho-ness that we sometimes see in, in men today. And I thought, yeah, except for like Ehud and Samson and David's mighty men and Benaiah and like a thousand others, okay? There's a bunch of examples of that. One of my favorite is, uh, is the one with uh, Benaiah I'll mention in a second. First, First Chronicles 5.18, it glorifies them because of their prowess at war. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war, 44,760 able to go to war. It's spoken of positively, okay? And this one's just awesome, okay? If you have young sons, you should read stories like this to them. First Chronicles 11, 22 through 23. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, or Kabzael in Hebrew, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's being, a really big spear. But Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Awesome, okay? There it is in the Bible. It's just literally talking about how this servant of God is a great warrior and it's commended, it's commended. Weapons are not, here's a corrective, weapons are not, and this is huge, weapons are not the way that Christ's kingdom spreads. The Bible's very clear on this. So your idea of personal self-defense as a Christian is very different than you killing on behalf of the church. So you need to remember, we talked about this uh, over several lectures, that you are both a Christian and a citizen, and you're always both, but some things you do in your Christian role, baptizing, evangelizing, preaching the gospel, some things you do in your state role, voting, defending yourself, joining the army. You can do both of those, you just need to keep in mind which role you're playing at that time because Christ's kingdom does not spread like Islam. Christ's kingdom does not spread through the sword. That's why the disciple is rebuked for drawing a sword when they're in the, the garden, they're trying to take Jesus and chopping off you know, the guy's ear is because he's trying to protect Jesus from having to go to the cross and Jesus says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Last thing, and again, we could mention more about weapons. We just have more to cover in this lesson. It seems that Jesus' disciples had swords for defense. Now, let me tell you why this is interesting. It's interesting that as Jesus is traveling with these disciples for three years, they're carrying weapons, and he knows about it. Swords are only used against humans, okay? You don't farm with a sword. You don't, like, go dig with it or something. It's really terrible. You don't cut down wheat with it. You don't hunt with a sword. You're not like waiting until you see a deer and you chase it down and hit it with a sword unless you're Benaiah or somebody like that who's awesome, okay? Swords are used only against people. That's the purpose of a sword. And Luke twenty-two thirty-six. 36, 
He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Luke twenty-two thirty-eight. and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords, and he said to them, it is enough. Now, I don't know if that means Peter had his, like, concealed dagger license or what, but it is interesting that Jesus at some point says, buy a sword, okay? So take that to be uh, whatever, whatever uh, you want it to be. So a summary before we get into some stuff about the Second Amendment and such. The right to have weapons is logically linked to the right to go to war, just war theory, or self-defense. If one has the right to go to war or defend oneself, then they also have a right to use a weapon if needed. So these last three lectures that we've given, this one and the previous two, are all linked logically, okay? If you believe there are times where a nation can go to war, then also that you should believe that they can do capital punishment. War is killing a foreign criminal. Capital punishment is killing a domestic criminal. And if you think that self-defense is justified in war, then you also think that self-defense is justified on a one-to-one basis. Here's an easy way to think of it as a Christian. It is always right to try to defend legally innocent life. Let me say it again. It is always right to try to defend legally innocent life. Why? Because humans have value, okay? We as Christians are not sexist. We as Christians are not racist, but we are speciesist. We do think humans are better than other animals, okay? Because we alone bear the image of God. We alone have this specialness and that we can worship and that we can think and that we're to subdue creation that other animals don't have. We are, as we teach our kids, special animals. We're still animals. We're still creatures, but we are special. And so it is always right to try to defend legally innocent life or to quote uh, Thomas Aquinas, to always keep a person in being. Let's talk about the Second Amendment in context, because as we are Christians thinking through this biblically, we also have to learn how to apply it within our society. Let's talk about the Second Amendment in context. It says this, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Let's talk about what this means originally. Let's talk about the correct interpretation of the Second Amendment, okay? I bounced some of these ideas off of an attorney as well just to make sure I didn't say something stupid. A few things to note. First of all, the purpose of this amendment has nothing to do with hunting. Hunting has always been allowed, okay? So I saw several large megachurches a few years ago after there was a shooting come up with videos about the Second Amendment and everybody's like, you know, I, I, like, I like the Second Amendment. I, like, I grew up hunting. And I thought, why are these the people that are representing Christianity? These are not the people. The Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting. You've always been allowed to hunt. Humans have always been allowed to hunt. It's how we eat and live, okay? So it has nothing to do with hunting. Hunting's already allowed, okay? Second thing, the purpose of this amendment, though it mentions a militia, includes self-defense from an attack. Self-defense has also always been allowed. Let me give you a Supreme Court case. In the 2008 Supreme Court case, District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court held that, quote, The Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use uh, that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. Additionally, the Second Amendment should, quote, guarantee an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. This came up because the District of Columbia was trying to forbid a certain type of concealed carry, and so uh, the Supreme Court said no. Actually, though the Second Amendment primarily is talking about a militia, There are some things that that automatically assumes. If you have a right to create a militia to protect yourself, you also have a right to just protect yourself, okay? That's kind of the uh, the logic behind that. Number three, the amendment does allow both for the owning and the bearing. Bearing means something like having with them or carrying of firearms. The idea of bearing is that you have access to it if you need it. Now, the states are free to determine what exactly that means, but 
you, you, can't, you can't do, you, you couldn't do this. You, the, the, the federal government couldn't say, you can own a gun, but you must keep it in another state a thousand miles away. Because then though you own it, you can't actually use it. You can't access it, okay? Next, number four, the amendment does not restrict or even specify which types of guns are allowed and which are not. The founders probably meant weapons equivalent to what would be needed for a militia, i.e. comparable to current personal military weapons, okay? So the amendment does not restrict what weapons should and should not be carried. That's gonna be a matter of debate and legislation, okay? The idea behind it is probably, first of all, people say, well, the, the amendment's just for muskets. First of all, show me where it says muskets. But second of all, muskets are the, what, the rifles of their day. They are what the military is using. So the idea, if it's, to, if it's to create a militia, probably would allow you to have some type of comparable small arms that you would have for individual soldiers today. That's kind of the idea. That if you have a right to defend yourself, you have a right to defend yourself from the kind of weapons the average criminal, for example, might possess. Number five, the purpose of the Second Amendment is to allow citizens to create a militia to protect themselves from outside invasion, like Japan in World War II. One of the things that was said by the Japanese government in World War II is that they did not want to have to invade the U.S. because, quote, there would be a gun around every corner. And to rebel against the government if the government oversteps its bounds, okay? That was part of the original intent. Now, you need to know this. The purpose of armed rebellion against the government should cause concern for Christians, you might need to listen to our previous lecture about resistance and revolution. So can you as a Christian, that's a sticky, sticky topic. It really depends on what's happening. Does the, uh, is the part of the purpose originally of having that clause there that you might need to overthrow the government, that the reason that you own firearms is to keep politicians in check? Yes, that's probably part of the original intent. Let's talk about some common misunderstandings of gun-related terms. You see this a lot on the news or in social media anytime there's a shooting. So let me, uh, let me gunsplain you some terms here. One, gun control. The set of laws or policies that regulate the manufacture, sale, transfer, possession, modification, or use of firearms by civilians. Note, most people are in favor of some type of gun control, even if very minimal. So even if you don't like gun control, there's probably a point to which I could push you to where you'd say, yeah, can you own an F-16, you know? Can you uh, own a nuke? Should you be able to take your gun on an airplane? Those kind of things. So even if you are very pro-gun, there's a, probably some, some of you might have no line. Some of you are like, all of us own nukes. Life would be great, okay? But most of us probably have a line to say, I want normal freedoms, but there are places where I think that uh, perhaps there should be some level of gun control. But gun control just is, it's a broad term for any laws or policies that regulate manufacture, sale, transfer, possession, modification, or use of firearms by civilians, Okay. Next phrase you'll hear a lot in the news, a gun-free zone. That is a location where a licensed weapons permit holder may not bring their firearm. Look at this next part. I put it in italics because it's really frustrating that people don't understand this. Notice that a gun-free zone doesn't apply to a criminal who will bring their gun wherever they want, okay? So a gun-free zone is not where people can't bring guns. Bad guys bring guns wherever they want. It's a place where good guys can't bring guns. It's a place, it is a self-defense-free zone is what it is. Right? So anytime a business puts a gun-free zone sign on their door, just put a murder-free zone. Just say, this is a murder-free zone. So that way if somebody comes up and they're like, oh, well, I don't want to break the law, so I might as well not commit any murders here today. And if you realize how dumb that is, you realize how dumb gun-free zones are. Okay? That's a gun-free zone, though. It is not where someone can't bring a gun. Bad guys don't follow the laws. The laws are there to, one, convict people when they break them. You have to have a standard so you can convict people. And two, to keep the average law-abiding citizen following the law. 
laws are not there to actually prevent criminals from doing it because criminals would do what criminals, criminals be criminal in. Criminals will do what criminals are gonna do, okay? AR, this is very important that you get this. AR does not stand for, quote, assault rifle. It stands for Armalite rifle. Armalite was the company that produced and popularized Eugene Stoner's original rifle design. That whole AR slash M16, M4-ish style platform was designed by a guy named Eugene Stoner. And uh, Armalite was the company that first mass produced it. That is why it is called AR. It does not stand for assault rifle. Let's talk about assault rifle. Assault rifle, in one sense, there is no such thing as an assault rifle. Assault is an action. To say it another way, if I stab you with a pencil, it's not an assault pencil. If I fight you wearing jeans, I didn't wear assault jeans, okay? An assault is an action, so you need to keep that in mind. In another sense, there is a military definition of an assault rifle, which must include selective fire to fully auto or three-round burst. Civilian model ARs do not meet that definition. So every time when somebody's like, assault rifles, assault rifles, someone shot up a school with assault rifle, I'm always like, just, just Google it. This information's out there. You can just Google it. It's not an assault rifle. To say it stronger, I don't know that there has been a single mass shooting in U.S. history that has been done with an actual assault rifle. The media often uses this term simply refer to any rifle, hunting or otherwise, that is painted black. An assault rifle is simply a rifle that looks cool. The end. That's it. it has not, it's not an actual assault rifle, and additionally, it's, assault is an action. Semi-automatic. This is where a firearm fires one round for each press of the trigger. We've had semi-automatic rifles since the 1800s and maybe even before that. This term is often confused with fully automatic, which is where the gun continues to fire as long as the trigger is depressed. So you'll hear people on the news say, he used a semi-automatic rifle. And all that means is really old technology fires only one bullet when you pull the trigger rifle. But they're trying to make it sound scary. They're trying to make the person sound crazy. Okay. Here's another one you'll hear. High capacity magazine. A magazine that has a round capacity that is considered higher than normal. The media uses this term to refer to standard capacity magazines, okay? So I don't have time to explain how gunfights work. This is a fun lecture for me because in addition to being a pastor, I've also been a professional tactical shooting instructor. So it kind of combines my two loves together. Under stress, you cannot perform like that when you think you're gonna die. In the state of Texas, state troopers who have more training than your average police officer miss 80% of their shots under stress. Trained shooters, 80%. Why? Because you get an adrenaline dump and you get narrow vision and you get auditory exclusion. One fourth of people in combat admit to going to the bathroom in their pants and all that means is that three fourths of people are liars. Your body shuts down and you're sh you shake and you get an adrenaline dump and your heart rate jumps up to over 200 beats per minute. You can't do all this crazy stuff. You're gonna be shaking, you're just doing the best that you can. Police officers will miss 80% of their shots under stress which means you need a bunch of rounds because if you're getting attacked by two people and you're missing 80% of your shots and people don't just die when you shoot them one time like they got shot in the soul or something like that, you need a bunch of rounds. So a 30 round magazine is standard for a rifle. A 15 to 17 round uh, magazine for a pistol is standard. Clip, this one drives me nuts. If you say clip, I will rebuke you so hard. What you put into your modern firearm is not a clip. A clip is a strip of metal to which you attach or insert rounds. They're used in much older weapon systems such as the M1 Garand. When most people say clip, what they should be saying is magazine. These are not interchangeable terms. When someone says it's a magazine, not a clip, they're not just being a gun nerd. They're totally different things, okay? They're totally different things. 
Most modern firearms do not use clips. To say it another way, clips feed magazines and magazines feed guns, okay? What you're using is a magazine, unless you're using some sort of real old-style weapon system. Here's another term you'll hear, military style. A term used to refer to a weapon that looks like it's used by the military, whether it's actually used by the military or not. It's often used by the media to make regular rifle owners sound like extremists, okay? So military style means nothing. The military, does, the military doesn't use civilian ARs, just throwing that out there. It's just used as a term to make a rifle sound weird and scary. And then maybe the term that most infuriates me, gun violence, gun violence. Any violence done by a firearm, let me tell you why that term is so unhelpful. This term is unhelpful because it doesn't distinguish between righteous gun violence and unrighteous gun violence. After all, the Nazis were technically stopped by gun violence. Anytime someone tries to show how many people were shot, or how many people were killed by police, or how many deaths were caused by guns, the information they present becomes absolutely meaningless. One must distinguish between good gun violence, such as when someone uses a gun in self-defense or when a police officer stops a criminal, from bad gun violence, such as murder. So anytime someone's like, look at all the statistics of gun violence. Well, it depends. Were a bunch of people having their homes broken into? Then I want the gun violence to go up. Are they talking about murders? Well, then I want the gun violence to go down. Gun violence is, is just this generic term that can be used for evil or for righteousness. And so we need to distinguish what kind of gun violence uh, we're talking about. If there's an active shooter and a SWAT team has to go in and use gun violence against a murderer, that's righteous gun violence. You don't need to say it's such a shame that a gun violence was used. But that person shooting up the school is using unrighteous gun violence. So keep those terms in mind when you hear things from the media. Let's talk about gun control statistics in the U.S. Now, before we get into this, I realize that statistics can be shaped. I don't know if you've known this whole COVID thing or not. We're all supposed to be dead by now. So you made it. Congratulations. Statistics can be warped. They can be twisted. They can be uh, shaped really to mean whatever people want them to mean. Mark Twain has a great quote about statistics. I can't quote it because he uses curse words. But uh, statistics can be really swayed. So here's what I've tried to do with these statistics. I realize you can find alternate statistics. I've tried to use statistics from sources that are not conservative. So in these gun control things I'm about to give you, these statistics, these are not from Fox News. These are not from Rush Limbaugh. These are not from something like this. They're primarily from liberal sources. I want to make the case that even when the liberals show that gun control doesn't work, that then we can obviously see that gun control doesn't work. Okay, so I want you to realize this. Remember, what is gun control? Somebody give me a good definition. Control of gun for law-abiding citizens, and it can relate to whether you can carry, what kind of gun you can own, et cetera. Excellent. So let's go over some statistics here. First, this one comes, by the way, from the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology at Northwestern University. It's a good university. It's certainly not conservative. Here's what, here's what they found. In the United States, for every one firearm-related homicide, there are 80 cases where a firearm is used in self-defense. This means that one is 80 times more likely to use a firearm in a lawful way to preserve innocent life than they are to use it in an unlawful way to take innocent life. A similar study done under the Clinton administration, a more liberal administration, concluded that there were almost 50 cases of self-defense uh, self gun use for every one gun-related homicide. Here's what that means. Every time you see on the news that somebody got shot and was murdered, you need to think, oh, there were 80 cases where people used a gun in self-defense to protect themselves. Okay, one to 80 is the ratio of unlawful versus lawful gun use in the United States. Same study found this. Ladies, ladies, you should be packing heat. Each year, there are more than 200,000 cases of sexual assault that are prevented by women carrying firearms, okay? This is why uh, Samuel Colt said that this, uh, 
that God made man and cult made all men equal. Uh, the idea is that if you're a lady, no matter how strong he, that guy is, he's not stronger than your, you know, 357 or something you're just packing. Anytime a little girl, so anytime like there's a girl that's little and she's like, what should I carry for self-defense? I always say, oh, Desert Eagle. Yeah, hands down. Way too big. No, don't use that. <clears throat> Next study. This comes from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Again, a very liberal organization on their global study on homicide in 2013. So let me describe this statistic to you. The U.S. has the highest per capita gun ownership in the world. We are the number one gun country per capita gun ownership. So if guns were the primary thing that were causing all the murders, we should be the number one per capita murder country. Everybody with me? Do you think we're in the top five? You think we're in the top 10? You think we're in the top 50? You think we're in the top 100? We rank 121st of per capita murders, which means there are 120 other countries with less guns and more murders than the United States, okay? So deal with it. Fourth thing, this comes from the Center for Disease Control, which we're all very familiar with now. Nobody used to know what that was, but now they are. This comes from their annual report in 2013. Aren't guns in the home dangerous for children? In one year, only about 69 children accidentally discharge a firearm that is not properly locked up. So you hear, if you have a gun in the house, your kids are gonna kill themselves. This isn't how many were hurt by the discharge, which is less, just how many accidentally fired a gun. To put this in perspective, there are twice as many children who die from bicycles each year than who die from firearms, okay? But Zach, if we have a gun in the home, what if my kid gets it? Well, you have a bicycle, so you're half as dangerous if you had a gun, right? This next one comes from uh, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Maybe you've heard of Harvard, pretty good school. Gun control statistically does not work. In 2004, the U.S. Academy of Sciences released its evaluation from a review of 253 journal articles, 99 books, 43 government publications, and some original empirical research. It failed to identify any gun control that had reduced violent crime, suicide, or gun accidents. The same conclusion was reached in 2003 by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control's review of then-existent studies. Okay? Now, you'll notice that some of these studies are a few years old. Part of the reason is that we don't have better studies is because several times Congress has tried to promote more of a study to see if gun control works, but it often gets blocked. By which side do you think? The left. Well, why would you do that? If guns are clearly the problem, let's get that evidence out there and, and prove the point. Show everybody. Next. Uh, this comes from uh, UK is the violent crime capital of Europe and the Telegraph by a uh, journalist named Richard Edwards. So some people say, Zach, why don't we just have a gun buyback or why don't we get rid of guns so we can be like the UK? The UK, not everyone can own a gun and it's so peaceful. The United Kingdom, where firearms ownership is severely restricted, has four times the amount of violent crime as the United States, okay? So remember, the issue is not just getting rid of mass shootings. If you stop mass shootings, but you add way more stabbings, that's not better or you add way more sexual assault, that's not better, okay? So four times, obviously we're a larger country, so this is done per capita, it's done as a percentage, but four times the amount of violent crime. According to the FBI, their annual report in 2011, each year there are about 323 homicides committed with rifles in the US. In comparison, about 496 people are killed with hammers or clubs. This means that blunt objects account for 60% more deaths than so-called assault rifles, okay? Keep that in mind. When you go to Home Depot and you buy a hammer, that more likely will be used as a weapon to murder someone than an assault rifle, okay? This next one comes from uh, John Lott, 
okay? A, uh, <clears throat> John Lott, a chief economist with the U.S. Sentencing Commission, listen to this quote. With just one exception, every public mass shooting in the USA since at least 1950 has taken place where citizens are banned from carrying guns. Despite strict gun regulations, Europe has had three of the worst six school shootings. He also writes, killers go where the victims can't defend themselves. In the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting, out of the seven theaters showing the Batman movie premiere within 20 minutes of the suspect's apartment, only one ban permitted concealed handguns. The suspect didn't go to the closest nor the largest, but to the one that banned self-defense. So the guy that wore the body armor and came in and shot up people watching the Batman movie in Aurora, Colorado, did not go to the, apart, to the uh, theater that was closest to his house. He did not go to the one that had the most people where he could have gotten a higher body count. He looked and found one that forbid license to carry holders from bringing in their firearm, and that's the one he went to, okay? Notice that there are no gun signs didn't keep him from shooting everyone. You have to realize killers are not brave. These are not typically like, you know, ex-military guys that know what they're doing. They're people that are angry at the world and they want you to feel their pain and they're not looking to get into a gunfight. They're looking to play God and rack up a body count and so that's where they go, okay? By the way, the Aurora, Colorado shooter also took Xanax before he went because he knew what your body did under stress, under combat, okay? And so he took that before he went. It was all very planned out. Additional facts about mass shootings, okay? This is really important, by the way, before I get into this, this is extremely important in our day where everybody is just terrified with this fear narrative. Nobody gives a number in comparison to anything else. Okay, so it's really important when talking about numbers to give it a comparison so people know what we're talking about. So let me ask this question. How many people purportedly have died from COVID over a year? So COVID's been out now for over a year worldwide. About how many people? Three million-ish? What's the number right now? But not, not just in the U.S., 250,000 in the U.S., worldwide. How many worldwide? Three million-ish? Everybody's looking on their phone. I'm gonna go with three million. Last time I checked, it was two million. Let's say it's been three million, which is certainly an overinflated number, but let's say it's three million. Worldwide, after a year. Do you know how many people die on any given year normally worldwide? 60 million. 60 million people die worldwide every year. So that number seems really scary and bad until you actually add some additional facts and just realize we don't realize how many people there are. There's a bunch of people, okay? 60 million people die worldwide every year, and we don't even think about it. But then you take 3 million, which is a tiny slice of that pie, and by the way, a lot of those same kinds of people that are dying overlap, and so then you actually see the result of that. Now, the reason I say that is because the same thing is true when it comes to people talking about guns, mass shootings, et cetera. So let me give you some facts here. There are about 371 million guns in the United States, meaning there are about as many guns as there are people. The idea that you could actually buy them all back or destroy all of them without bad guys keeping some is virtually impossible. A complete gun ban or government buyback in addition to being unconstitutional isn't a real solution. So sometimes when there's a shooting, people's solution is, let's buy back all the guns like Australia. Let's get rid of all the guns. This isn't Australia. This isn't England. We've had guns since 1776 and even before that. That's how we got to 1776, okay? The idea that you could get all those guns back and the bad guys wouldn't keep them. The idea that you could get those guns back and good guys wouldn't keep them. You have no idea how many friends I've talked to and they're like, I've got a secret basement in New Mexico and it's got a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, ah, oh, don't tell me this. Plausible deniability, plausible deniability. A, 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 that is not a real solution, right? So we have to come up with things that are real solutions. So keep that in mind. You couldn't actually do that. There are as many guns as there are people in the US. Listen to this next thing. Almost all mass shootings happen in places where licensed concealed carry holders cannot take their guns. 
If potential victims had the right to shoot back, the number of mass shootings would go down. All of the following mass shootings and more happened in, quote, gun-free zones. Columbine, Las Vegas, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, the Lubies in Colleen, Texas, Parkland, the University of Texas, San Bernardino, the post office in Edmond, Oklahoma, Fort Hood, and I could just keep listing that, okay? The most dangerous thing is when the government says, you can't protect yourself, but a bad guy can come in here with a gun, okay? Now, let's talk about some other things about mass shootings. Mass shootings are usually over in five minutes or less, okay? So when someone says, Zach, we don't need guns, we'll just call the cops. You know what the average police response time is in the U.S.? Ten minutes. So let's back up and think about what I just said. The average mass shooting is over in the U.S. in five minutes. The average police response time is ten minutes. The police are there to pick up body parts at that point, if I may be blunt, okay? So this idea, I'm always pretty close to me. Check it out. It's hard to get away from me. The police are not always close to me, okay? This is why this idea of self-defense is important. Now, one of the things that's interesting is at Columbine, it took 47 minutes. They, police have changed, SWAT teams have changed their tactics since Columbine. What you would traditionally do when there's a mass shooting is people would hold hostages or ransoms for some reason. So you get a negotiation team, what do you want? Hey, I want a bunch of money and I wanna do whatever, and you would negotiate. Well, at Columbine, you had guys that were just trying to get a body count. They didn't wanna negotiate. So it took 47 minutes and they killed all those kids. They could have literally done it with the same time with muskets. That's how, that's how much time they had. Today, police have changed their procedure for this kind of stuff where you might, if you're a solo officer or a two-man team, you will go in if there is a mass shooting, even with the SWAT team's not there because there have been so many people that try to rack up body counts, okay? Listen to this other one, and then I'll give some closing thoughts and then have old Jer, Jer, Jer come up here and we'll do some questions. Listen to this. Of the top 10 most violent mass shootings in U.S. history, top 10, a total of 259 people died. That is obviously tragic, but to put that in perspective, consider this. 6,675 people die every day in the U.S., and 160,000 die every day worldwide. This means that 25 times more people die in the U.S. every single day than the worst mass shootings combined. Though it doesn't feel this way, mass shootings, especially with rifles, are very, very rare when you consider the population. Again, you've got to keep in mind the numbers. Zach, people are dying. There's mass shootings. Yes, 7,000-ish Americans die every day regular. Three million a year Americans regular. Worldwide, 160,000 people a day regular. Pre-COVID, pre, I mean, with, with or without rifles. And so you have to keep this kind of stuff in mind, okay? Now, none of this is to say you have to like guns, get guns, whatever. I'm just trying to give you some facts so that you as a Christian, when you hear the news, that you're a critical thinker, Okay? Don't trust people that you know have an agenda on either side, okay? On either side. We have to be good stewards. We have to take all thoughts captive to Christ. We have to be good Bereans and study the scriptures together to see if what's being said is really true. But what you need to understand is the idea of just getting rid of weapons will not stop the issue that's in the human heart, okay? Let me say, let me say something practically and I wanna say something pastoral. Sometimes you'll hear this idea. Why can't police officers just shoot someone in the leg? Why can't they just shoot the gun out of their hand while they're flipping through the air or something like this? 
That's, if, if that sounds ridiculous, it's because it is. Remember, this, if you want great studies on this, there's a West Point psychologist. His name's Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He wrote two books, he wrote several books, but two good ones on killing and on combat. And he has devoted his life to studying the psychological effects of killing and combat. And he gives all the statistics of what happens to your body in a gunfight. You shake, you get an adrenaline dump, you go to the restroom in your pants usually, you get tunnel vision, you can't hear. Police officers report not hearing their gunshots at all. You can't, I mean, your body shuts down. It goes back into primal survival, don't die mode. So the idea that shaking, when somebody just pulls a gun, you can shoot the gun out of their hand or you can shoot them in another part of their, it's crazy. You wanna kill somebody, shoot them in the leg, okay? The, one of the largest arteries in your body run through your legs, your femoral arteries. You shoot someone in the leg, they bleed out in 30 seconds and die. Shoot them in the leg, that's stupid. That's a great way to kill them, okay? Additionally, if they're shooting at you and you shoot them in the leg and they fall down, they're still gonna shoot you. It doesn't stop them doing the violent action. So you'll hear guys, even on the Gospel Coalition and all this kind of stuff, say, police should shoot them in the leg. These are guys that know nothing about gunfights, okay? They know nothing about how gunfights work. And so you need to keep that in mind. We can't just shoot them in the leg. If you are trying to kill an agent of the state, if they kill you back, they kill you first in self-defense, Romans 13 calls them God's servants, okay? Keep that in There should be no safe way to rebel against cops. There should be no safe way to rebel against the military. You should take your life into your own hands when you're hating God enough to rebel against God's agent, okay? Now, I wanna say something pastoral that I think is really, uh, is really important. Is the issue with mankind something that's internal to us or is it something that's external, okay? Is the problem this metal object called a gun, which by itself harms no one, or is the problem what's in the human heart? Sin. The issue is inside of us. The same thing was true with prohibition. A lot of Christians got behind prohibition and we shouldn't, it was dumb. The problem is not this morally neutral liquid called alcohol, which can be used righteously or unrighteously. The issue is the human heart. Are you using it to celebrate life or are you using it to get drunk? The same thing is true with a firearm. The issue is not this morally neutral piece of metal and polymer or something like that. The issue is the heart. So you'll find out that really what's at the heart of the debate between right and left when it comes down to the gun issue is actually a debate about human nature. Is mankind born totally depraved? Is mankind born evil and sinful? And therefore, we find a way to kill each other, whether it's Cain with a rock or whether it's somebody else with a gun, or is that humans are neutral, like Pelagius taught. Humans are good, and so that way, if we could just get rid of these bad guns, then people wouldn't commit the crimes. You see, what's at the heart of most political things is not political, it's theological. It's theological. Let me pray as Jared comes up here for some questions. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for today. I uh, pray that uh, people would take this lesson with a grain of salt, that uh, your word gives us a lot of freedom in this. It doesn't require swords or anything like that. So I pray that we'd be better informed, but that we wouldn't think that, uh, you know, that Jesus would be here today with an AR or something like that. So would you help us? Would you help our hearts? We love you. We thank you. We pray for protection. We do pray that there would be less mass shootings. We do pray that there would be less murders. We do pray that uh, these weapons, which can be good or bad, would be used more righteously than unrighteously. And we long for the day where we will beat our uh, Glocks into plowshares and our AR, ARs into pruning hooks, where we will, uh, our hands will learn war no more. We ask that that day would come quickly. It's in Christ's name. Amen.